It's fair to say that State Senator Kurt Schaefer has been in the eye of many political storms as of late, and now he's trying to fend off a feisty challenge in the Attorney General's race. The Columbia Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five four, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me, she's back. Yeah, Yes, back from the wilds of Indiana. Yes. Joe Manis. And um, Missouri's most notable politician who also likes the band Joy Division, we have as our special guest today... Senator Kurt Schaefer, and I'll reiterate what's in the intro. I stand by my record. I, I, I think that Ron Richard is a secret New Order fan. Um, but thank you very much. You're in studio this time. This is the second time you've been on the show. And he's sporting cowboy boots. Uh, so I he's always ready to sport work. cowboy boots. Though. Really? Yes. Do you always. wear cowboy boots all the time? All the time. Well, really? part of his I have since high school. I mean, yeah. part, part of his district is Cooper County, which is very rural, and some of Boone County is very rural. Sure, absolutely. Too. So you, you've got to fit in with the people, so to speak. So um, just remind our, our listeners, your your senatorial district for people that may not know you 100 percent. I'm the senator from the 19th Senate District, which is all of Boone County, which Columbia is the county seat of Boone County, and all of Cooper County, which Booneville, uh, as you drive down Highway 70 heading west, is the county seat of Cooper County. And that is home of the Isle of Capri Casino. I've been there several times. It's a lovely place. It is. A very lovely place. So a lot to talk about. Um, you were very busy this week as the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. The budget is finished, and it's only April 21st, 22nd. So it's about two weeks ahead of normal. Yeah. Right. Second second year in a row that uh, we've done what we set out to do, which was pass the budget early enough that the governor, if he's going to line item veto things in the budget, he has to give it back to us while we are still there. So we could override those vetoes rather than waiting until the special veto session in September. We did that last year for the first time in Missouri's history, decided to do it again this year, and we're right on track. Did, did, I don't think the governor withheld anything last year, did no, he? No. If you remember, the year before that, he did a record number of vetoes. And so I had to do the overrides. I think it was 54. I hold the record for the number in the state of Missouri, the number of governor over, overrides of the governor's vetoes. I think it was 54. Uh, and so we suspected he might do it again, but last year he didn't do it. We gave him the budget early, and he ended up uh, not doing it. Um, so it, it didn't seem like this year was an especially acrimonious budget year as a whole. There were, we're going to get to some aspects of it, but it seems like the revenue situation has stabilized in the last few years where it's just kind of a some give and take over specific items as opposed to cutting huge swaths of the yeah, budget. Yeah, Is I that think, fair to say? Yeah, I think it's a fair assessment. Um, you know, not a lot of uh, disagreement really between the governor and the House. A little bit kind of on the under, underlying number to which we budgeted to, but ultimately we agreed to that. So, you know, other than those individual projects the governor has, the House has, the senator or the Senate has, um, individual senators want in the budget, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty smooth. So at, at, at this point, do you foresee now – our listeners should understand your district includes the University of Missouri. You've been one of the more vocal critics of the university, but you also ended up being one of the people who did try to um, soften the 
cuts that some had been pressing for the University of Missouri's budget. I'm interested in your thoughts about how things ended up and why they ended up the way they did. Yeah, and I've said this before, you know, one of the hardest things about being the center from the 19th is representing the University of Missouri because obviously, you know, the, the University of Missouri is a tremendous institution and you want to be supportive of the institution, but you're not always supported supportive of the boneheaded decisions that individuals at the at the institution sometimes make. And I think that's never been more apparent than the fallout of what we're seeing from decisions that were either made or not made, frankly, uh, during some of the protests and the other activity throughout the fall. As a result of that, you know, it's it, it's usually the, the job of the senator from Boone to be protective of the university. And that's been a huge part of my of my Senate career for eight years. But there's a lot of uh, dislike for the University of Missouri. And it, you know, it stems from a lot of things. I think there, there's a lot of times an arrogance perceived by the University of Missouri and how they approach the legislature. And then with term limits, things are much more parochial to where before term limits, you had a University of Missouri, which was kind of generally acknowledged as the state university. Mm-hmm. Well, now with term limits and you've got people who have a limited shelf life, they see the University of Missouri no different than the four-year institution in their district. And so the dynamic changes in that regard. But what happened was, particularly after what happened in the fall, uh, the House really did make some pretty draconian cuts to the university. We were able to restore those in, in, in the Senate budget that I chaired, ultimately came out with a pretty good compromise. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, yeah, in, in the early part of the session, it, it was looking like there was going to be some pretty major cuts to the University of Missouri system. And one of your colleagues, Senator Jill Shoup of Creep Corps, when I asked her if that was a possibility, ended up making this prediction. They're backing off from some of that tough talk. I think that at the end of the day, they may have um, Senator Schaefer, the Senate Appropriations Chair, come riding in on his white horse and saying we're going to restore some money to the university. Because at the end of the day, what we know happens is these cuts hurt students. And I don't think that... um, that either Senator Richard nor Senator Schaefer wants to be accountable for what may be an issue of hurting the ability of students to get the quality and access to higher education that they need. So was Senator Shoup prophetic in her prediction right there? Well, first of all, I ride a motorcycle. I don't ride a horse. <laughs> but aside from that, um, I you know, I think she's right in the, in the sense that uh, we had a lot of discussion in the hearing that we don't want to hurt students. And, you know, we don't want to hurt the, the, the staff that maintains the grounds and keeps the sidewalks and the buildings safe. Yet, as a result of poor decisions made out of University Hall by people making six-figure salaries, um, you know, we see a downturn in enrollment. And even before we made our final decision in the state budget, the university cut a bunch of jobs from people that maintain the grounds. Yet, we don't see any accountability from the people that actually made the decisions that resulted in the downturn in the enrollment. So I I think we were very careful, and the university did come out pretty well on the budget. We were able to restore at least some of what the House had cut because we don't want to see students get hurt, and we don't want to see staff who had nothing to do with poor judgment and decision-making get hurt. But in that regard, and I I think one thing that Senator Shoup's not including in her message, and I don't know when she made that statement. In February. Okay. So at that time, we were probably already working on my resolution, which creates a joint uh, committee that oversees the university. Because my statement all along has been, look, you know, we have to hold the university accountable and, and they have to be transparent. And that's something that, frankly, I have fought the university on for eight straight years. But before we make draconian cuts in their budget, Let's have an objective outside analysis of what they need to change, which is what my resolution does to create that uh, committee. 
and then use that recommendation to determine whether or not they're going to have those draconian cuts. So I think that what we were able to do is soften the cuts for this year, which were more of a knee-jerk reaction to bad decisions made at the university. But I think if we put that committee together, which that legislation is going through, and I suspect will get passed, and we'll put that group together, if ultimately they come back at the end of December and have things that uh, that need to be changed and the university doesn't change those, I think that's a more informed way to determine how much state revenue they're going to get. Now, um you mentioned that there's a perception by some out-state legislators that the university is arrogant, but a lot of this has been a reaction to what happened last fall. Were people upset over the protests, way that, the way the protests were handled, um, the president resigning? What really ignited all the anger this time? You know, I think the biggest thing is what all of that demonstrated throughout all those issues, whether it's, you know, Melissa Click calling for more muscle and, and not really facing any accountability for that, or, or whether it was student protest, was just a lack of leadership by the administration to just somehow take control. Because here's the thing, it's a college campus. You're always going to have protests on a college campus. I mean, you, that, that's just a fact of life of college students. I was a college student, and I remember back in the 1980s when we had the protest against apartheid, and we had a shantytown, you know, on the quadrangle for, I can't remember, most of the year. And ultimately, they were successful. And I think the administration at that time first ignored them, then had to deal with them. And ultimately, the students got the resolution that they wanted. That's how you deal with it. And so regardless of the underlying subject matter of what it is, the question is, how are people who are making large six-figure salaries of public money to deal with and operate their campus, dealing with those things that are clearly anticipated to come up. And I think what we saw out of the protests in the fall was nobody knew how to deal with it. I thought this was really funny. About two weeks ago, the university put out a statement that said, hey, we have a rule that we do not allow protests on campus that disrupt uh, campus operations. And that makes sense because you can't be unfair to right. other students. And they put out a statement two weeks ago that said, we're actually we're going to enforce that now. Well, where was the enforcement of that in the fall? I mean, frankly, if you would have seen enforcement of that, maybe Tim Wolf wouldn't have resigned. But I, I think what most of us saw was arguably what is a difficult situation. Students needed to be addressed. Their grievances need to be heard. Somebody who gets a large six-figure salary needs to make the determination, is this real? Is it not real? What's the adjustment to it? But all we saw was panic. We saw panic by people that got paid with public money to make those decisions, and that was not acceptable. Now, I want to talk about the underlying issue for a minute, because when I was at the University of Missouri from 2002 to 2006, there were protests over race there. Sure. One of the things that I remember very vividly is there was this terribly racist column in what was the MU Student News, which no longer exists anymore, that antagonized members of the African-American Greek community. And what I remember happening was some of them rallied at Jesse Hall. Brady Deaton came and talked to them personally. I'm not really sure if that occurred this time around, which is probably why it spun out of control. But I want to play a clip now from Senator David Pierce about what this perception about the University of Missouri, Columbia's campus as not friendly to African-Americans means to prospective students. Well, I think the very fact that, that students uh, feel uncomfortable or feel that there are racist tendencies or racist attitudes means that there's something there. And, and I don't think you can just dismiss that or, or tell people to ignore it or be tough. Um, and so I think those need to be addressed. And uh, whether that's to the administration or um, a diversity officer or, or different programs, uh, I think those, those should be explored and, and promoted. And so I don't think anyone thinks that you should tolerate uh, an attitude of racism or that students should be uncomfortable. So I want to ask you, I know that I, I'm not expecting the legislature to micromanage 
race relations. That's obviously the responsibility of the administration. But isn't it bad for the whole state that the University of Missouri-Columbia has this perception of not being welcoming to African-Americans? Well, I think when you don't see the, when you see the administration not taking seriously student protests over the issue of race relations, I think that helps spread the message that it's not being taken seriously. But again, that's the role of the administration to make that determination. Because the other thing, you know, and, and I was at the University of Missouri in, in the 19, graduated in the 1980s, the late 1980s, and, the, and you know, college campuses are places of exchange of ideas. People get upset. But the question is, is, is there a policy that allows you to cross the line? Are things that are abusive as opposed to an exchange of ideas occurring? That is something the legislature is not going to micromanage. And we, we expect, you know, the people that get paid quite a bit of money with public money to manage those things. And that's why I think you see the response. I agree with, with Senator Pierce. We should never accept racism. But somebody has to objectively evaluate what the what the issues are and whether or not something needs to be done. And look, that's the case whether it's out of control student fees, whether it's racial issues, whether it's sexual harassment on campus. But that's what we expect. And it's not what we got as far as actually taking charge of the situation. I mean, you have been uh, the chairman of the Special Sanctity of Life Committee. Uh, you had been one of the leaders in looking into the allegations against Planned Parenthood. You also had been one of the leaders uh, trying to, uh, in effect, shut down the Columbia Clinic or at least having to deal with the abortions there. And you did target the university over the um, uh, connection they had with the— Refer and follow, yeah, follow yeah, privileges. The, yeah, the refer and follow privileges. I'd be interested in your take on, now looking back, um, how that played out and, of course— uh, you were the leader of the effort to cut the fund, the Medicaid funding for Planned Parenthood. So I'm just interested in your take on all that. Yeah, I mean, as a former prosecutor, the big issue there for me is is a rule of law issue. And so, for example, on the Sanctity of Life Committee, which we put together in response to, to the videos that came out in July on some pretty egregious practices. And, and obviously, we aren't the only state to do that. Uh, other states are looking into that as well as Congress. And I know statements have been put out that, that say that, you know, those videos were doctored. I have never seen anything to this day that says they're actually false. Um, and so we put that committee together because we have several different laws in the state of Missouri that are relevant to that issue, uh, you know, as far as it is illegal uh, to sell fetal tissue uh, in the state of Missouri. And so there are a lot of things that came up in that video that if they're occurring in the state of Missouri would be a violation of state law. And that's what we looked at. Um, and, and, you know, I, unfortunately, it was the interim committee. We didn't have enough time to get everything done. But I hope that that committee picks up and finishes its work. Now, now, Coster, as you know, the attorney general conducted an investigation, and they say that they found no wrongdoing by the St. Louis Clinic, which has maintained that it doesn't it doesn't deal with donated remains anyway, that it destroys everything. Was Did that affect, I mean, how you looked at it, or has that affected uh, the ongoing dealings with Planned Parenthood? Well, you know, I, I mean, I respect the Attorney General's ability to look into that, but that's separate from our investigation of that. And I think when you look at the actual evidence that's out there, uh, because one thing that we did, we did subpoena both Planned Parenthood and the pathologist, pathology services yes. that deals with it. So it's interesting because the evidence that we got from the committee was that even though there's a state law that says that uh, aborted babies from Planned Parenthood, there's a representative sample of tissue that goes from Planned Parenthood to the pathologist, yeah. and then there's ultimate disposal. What we found out from the hearing was that actually the entire fetus was going to the pathologist. And so there's a little bit of disagreement there. What we also found out was there was a period of time that even though the law 
requires the pathologist to submit a report to Health and Senior Services. That was not occurring. And then on top of that, um, what we found out about a month ago was that the pathologist, Pathology Services, actually was was in a lawsuit with the state of Indiana. They got fined. They entered into a yes. settlement agreement with the state of Indiana for illegally disposing of aborted fetuses from the St. Louis Planned Parenthood uh, in, in, in the state of Indiana. That includes, because that practice continued from 2012, and this is in the settlement agreement, right. this isn't my opinion, from 2012 till January of 2016, which would include the month of June of 2015 that the Attorney General looked at. So I don't think the Attorney General quite looked in the level of depth that we are looking at. Otherwise, I think the Attorney General would have found out that, in fact, those fetuses from Planned Parenthood in St. Louis were being illegally disposed of in Indiana. So, in fact, everything wasn't kosher. Uh, There was actually a legal disposal going on. Now, another issue that came before that committee was the fact that the referral and follow privileges were at the MU hospital. Right. It's my understanding that that's not a new development, that MU Hospital had had refer and follow privileges before it shut down. So my question is, like, I I don't remember it being a big issue back then. Why is it a big issue now? Because I don't think that that was ever really known by anybody. That's something that was very clearly they tried to keep under the radar. And keep in mind, you've got two state laws, one that says no public funds can be used to to encourage or aid in abortion. And one says no public institution can do that. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the linchpin of Planned Parenthood in Columbia getting a new license, which they had not had since 2012, to start performing abortions again at the Columbia Clinic, the linchpin of being able to get that license or not hinges on the University of Missouri, which is a state institution with state funds using state resources, being the enabler of the privileges for the doctor so that that license can be issued. I think that's a rule of law issue that violates that provision of law. Now, but before it shut down in 2012, the the state law requiring refer and follow privileges was still in effect. So it wasn't like Boone Hospital, the, the, the hospital... That was that was the refer and follow privilege. Which hospital was it? No, in fact, I don't. Well, I mean, that obviously was before we really discovered this was going on, because I will tell you before the fall when we started investigating this, I didn't know what the case was. But we did find out that before 2012, there was a doctor at the university hospital, Mm -hmm. not Boone. As far as I can tell, Boone's never been the enabler of, so, uh, of that. I guess the reason I'm asking is I, I didn't really hear you make a big deal about it. Because I didn't know about it. Yeah. I mean, that's one that, that's one nice thing about what came out of the committee is we really were able to shine a light and make more transparent what the role of a public institution like the University of Missouri is mm-hmm. and, frankly, enabling abortion to occur at the, at the Planned Parenthood Clinic. And I think that all that was really kept in the dark. Because keep in mind, when we held that hearing and I subpoenaed the director of health and senior services who issued the license to Planned Parenthood to come in and I said, all right, you know, there are multiple things in the law that are required for Planned Parenthood to meet before they can get that license. And so I subpoenaed those documents from Health and Senior Services. They produce a three-foot-tall stack of documents to me, which I went through. And I can, as a lawyer, I can look at every requirement in the statute and then match it up with documents in the pile and say, okay, I see how they meet this. You got these documents. But the one thing that was missing was who was the hospital that granted the privileges? And so in the open hearing, I asked the director, I said, who is it that granted the privilege? She said, I'm not going to tell you that. It's confidential. Well, I mean, I've been litigating cases under the Sunshine Law for, you know, 20 years. And so, I mean, I have a pretty good handle on what's required to be transparent and what's not. I saw nothing that required that to be kept confidential. Um, and so I basically gave her a week and said, you got to give us the answer. And a week later, I think with about 15 minutes left before the end of the day on the last day, she sent me a letter and indicated it was the university hospital. I mean, there were great lengths taken here to make sure that it was not easily available, that it was the university that enabled that. Now, uh, one of the 
questions, and this has come up in other states, is that the the 30-mile limit, if you only have um, public hospitals within that 30-mile limit, as which would be in the case I'm in Columbia. I'm sure that there's so the where would where could the physician who handles reproductive stuff at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Columbia go? Well, I mean, you've got Boone Hospital, which is situated a little bit differently, but you've got private, you've got, uh, private hospitals in Jeff City, which are 30 miles away. Because, I mean, isn't that beyond 30? Isn't I think that like more than, I think St. Mary's is more than 30 miles away well, from well, Columbia. Well, I mean, keep in mind, it actually says 15 minutes travel time in the okay. in, It's not in 15 the minutes to get to Columbia to Jefferson and City. And it may not be, but that's what the law says. And you know what? As a state senator, I've tried to uphold the law where I can. And as a former prosecutor, I firmly believe that we need to uphold the laws of the state of Missouri. Now, I, I want to ask more of a broader question about this, because this has been brought up by your critics on both the left and the right. And that is your statements that you made to me in 2008 when you were running for the state Senate for the first time. Just to give our listeners some context, this is after you made your maiden speech at the old Hawthorne Country Club in Columbia. And I asked you point blank whether you were for abortion rights or against abortion rights. This is what you had to say. What would you consider yourself pro-choice, pro-life? How would you how would you consider yourself? I think the issue of abortion has been settled in the state. Mm -hmm. I think that we've met a balance. I think it's, a, it's always going to be a divisive issue, but I think that we've reached a point in the state where we are at at least a workable point so we can get past the issue mm -hmm. and get to the more important issues of economic sustainability, environmental issues, mm -hmm. all those other things that we need to divert our attention to. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I support the status quo. By the way, that was recorded on a high-tech point-and-shoot camera that is now horribly obsolete. <laughs> I, I think the reason I bring that up is when someone hears that, and they see what you're doing now, they may think that your attitude toward this issue has changed pretty dramatically in the last eight no, years. No, and I don't think so at all. This is, an, this is a rule of law issue. So number one, it, you know, this is very analogous to, for example, what's going on with, with the gay marriage issue right now. So the court has defined what the legal status is, just as I said in, in uh, that clip. Legally, that's established. But then when you see things, for example, of what came out in those videos, over the summer, which would clearly, if that is going on in the state of Missouri, and keep in mind in that first video, at about minute 51 of that video, the Planned Parenthood in St. Louis is specifically referenced as being an undertapped market for the availability for the sale of, of fetal body parts. That is a rule of law issue. And it's no different than the issue that we just talked about with the University of Missouri. For example, if the University of Missouri is enabling that practice, yet you have two different state statutes that say that public funds and public institutions cannot do that, that's a rule of law issue. So I think it's very consistent. What would you say to your critics who are saying you took a different mentality toward abortion when you were running in Boone County, which is Democratic leaning, and one for statewide office, which has a more conservative audience. I'd say my position has not changed on this. And as a former prosecutor and as a, a candidate for attorney general, the rule of law is the primary important thing for somebody who's asking to be the state's top law enforcement officer. And I think these are absolutely rule of law issues. Now, um, as you and I mentioned before the program started, um, there's been a several states where the uh, legislators have attempted or succeeded in cutting Planned Parenthood out of the me Medicaid program, which in Missouri, as in many states, is partially federally funded. Now, previously, the Planned Parenthood portion had been coming from the federal funds, not the state portion. Now, from most of the states where this has been fought, um, in many cases, the state is lost. Uh, 
What makes you think that in the Missouri case that Missouri would be able to withstand a possible and likely court challenge of what was done? Well, because one thing we did in the state budget this year, which has never been done before, you know, you've got an entire multi-billion dollar Medicaid program, but but it's not all, there are separate silos within that. Correct. So that silo that specifically goes to women's health services, that, that Planned Parenthood is reimbursed as a Medicaid provider. Because keep in mind, unlike the federal government, which actually gives money to Planned Parenthood, the only money that Planned Parenthood gets from the state of Missouri is as an approved Medicaid provider. Correct. And so there's a silo of money within the Medicaid program, which is $10 million, which is for uh, women's health services, reproductive health services, which is that's the pot of money that Planned Parenthood gets reimbursed as a Medicaid provider under, as do FQHCs, rural health clinics, and county health departments that provide not only those same services as Planned Parenthood, but a multitude of additional services like mammograms, cancer screenings, which Planned Parenthood does not do, okay? So that silo of money is $8 million of federal Medicaid money which then has $2 million of state general revenue match. Correct. And so the way that Medicaid program works is if you take that $8 million, you have to allow Planned Parenthood to be a Medicaid provider. What we did in the state budget this year is we simply took that $8 million out of federal money, backfilled it with $8 million of additional GR, general revenue, so there's not a single dollar of loss for the program or for those services. But now that it is entirely a state program, it is, in, it is the state's ability to say where that money goes. And so what we want to make clear is that FQHCs, uh, rural health clinics, county health departments, of which there are over 580 in this state that provide the same services as Planned Parenthood and more, those are the providers that will still be provided money under this. But Planned Parenthood, of which there are 13 clinics in the state of Missouri, will no longer be. Now, in the, in the late 90s, and you and I have talked a little bit about this because I actually covered this. Um, the state of Missouri used to have a family planning program, and a number of uh, public uh, clinics and Planned Parenthood got money out of that. Uh, the General Assembly tried to cut Planned Parenthood out of that because they also do abortions, although they say not with state money. Uh, there was a big legal fight that ensued. The upshot was that the state had to eliminate the entire family planning program in order to eliminate funding for Planned Parenthood because the courts ruled that you couldn't let some uh, groups get it and not other groups. How will the state handle it this time when they're arguably going to make the state same argument that if it's going to federally qualified health clinics, it also should go to Planned Parenthood? You know, this is very similar to what Texas recently did, which was upheld by the federal courts. I, you know, I think what you've seen other states do is it's actually what the House did. They put language at the beginning of House Bill 11, which is social services, mm-hmm. that said, you know, no one who provides abortion can be you know, reimbursed for Medicaid services. Well, multiple states have tried that and they have all lost in federal Correct. courts because you, if you take that federal money, then any willing provider can can come forward and, and, and get that service, and that includes Planned Parenthood. And that's kind of the design of what the federal government does through that Medicaid line. But when it is entirely a state-funded program, and actually that language from that 1999 decision uh, from the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals is very clear on that and upholds the concept that if it's a state-funded program, then the state can dictate where that money goes. Now, before we get to the campaign for Attorney General, I want to talk about another committee that you were an interim head of, and that was looking into the aftermath of the Ferguson unrest. Mm-hmm. I, I only, I, correct me if I'm wrong, how many hearings did that committee end up having? We had two. Why didn't you guys have more? That's an ongoing committee of the Government Oversight Committee, which, you know, there are multiple things that that committee is, is charged with looking at. Ferguson was certainly one of them. Um, 
you know, there are a lot of issues, I think, that that committee still needs to look at. I think that, that the Ferguson issue, particularly for history, it needs to be clearly articulated what happened and what didn't happen. But I think some of those issues are still ongoing, and I think we need to be very careful in what happens uh, as far as until some of those issues are resolved, which frankly are not resolved yet. There's only like three more weeks of the session, and then you're going to be transversing the state running for attorney general. Like, how much more time is there to have committee hearings there? You know, I, I think, first of all, you, you still have legal issues that are going on mm-hmm. uh, with Ferguson on some of those issues. And, and I think that while it clearly needs to be articulated for the record what happened and what didn't happen, yeah. I, I, I think that some of those things need to play out first. Now, one of the other thing that came to mind, have you did you read the Ferguson Commission report or read aspects of it? Yes. Uh-huh. Now, one of the things, and this kind of segues into the attorney general part of it, The first thing that was suggested in the Ferguson Commission report was bringing in the attorney general as an independent prosecutor whenever there's a police-involved killing. Now, that hasn't gone anywhere in the legislature, but if you become attorney general and that law ends up passing, you would be responsible for that. I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on that particular issue. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, most police departments, accredited police departments and, and in the Highway Patrol, I mean, they have internal procedures if you've got a, an officer-involved shooting of how that's investigated and how that's looked at. Whether or not there would be some additional step after that, I, I, I don't believe that, that necessarily in every single case right out of the box there, there should be involvement of the attorney general. Just like there are multiple things that happen with local governments that I don't think the attorney general should get involved in. You know, should there be an additional process, maybe if, if, if there's still unresolved facts or something from that? I, I think that would be appropriate. Are there any other aspects of the Ferguson Commission report dealing with body cameras, use of force, training, that you would advocate for that the legislature pass if you were attorney general? I think, you know, again, I think a lot of what that committee looked at, some of those things were political, some were not. I used to represent the post commission, one of the things I had to do, one of the hats I wore when I was an assistant attorney general and prosecutor. I think we've got very professional police departments in this state. I think we need to keep our eye on that, that in fact, you are always going to have issues, whether it's public schools or police departments or anything else. But I think we need to be very careful um, in, in, in casting a very broad net you're always going to have bad situations that occur, but I think we have a very professional uh, police standard uh, through post in the state of Missouri. And I think, you know, could that be strengthened? Sure, you can always make it better. But I think we need to be careful that we that we don't fail to recognize that we do have a very good system in the state of Missouri. Yeah. Now, I've been covering, and so is Jason, to some degree, the attorney general's race. And your contest with... Um, Professor Josh Hawley is arguably one of the most spirited among all the statewide uh, primary contests right now. I would say even it challenges the governor's race when it comes to spiritedness. Now I'm going to go. With, I'm going to have to say the Democratic primary for governor between Chris Coster, Charlie Wheeler, and Leonard Steinman is way up there at this point. But <laughs> continue, being, Joe. He's being sarcastic. But so I'm just. And you and I had talked about this a couple months ago. I did an overview. Uh, how do you see the race right now? I mean, just for our listeners to know, the last three months, the first quarter of this year, uh, Professor Hawley did outraise you substantially, although you do have more in the bank because you had raised more earlier. I'm just interested in your take on the race as it stands now 
and what you see as your strengths. Yeah, I mean, as far as having the resources to win the race, I'm not worried about that. And, and you're right, you know, I, I have raised two to one on him, which is important in a campaign. The first quarter is always tough because keep in mind, I am still in the legislature and it is it used to be illegal to contribute during the during the session. It's not anymore, but you still have a lot of people that don't want to contribute during the session. And just as a practical matter, you know, between my Senate responsibilities, particularly as chairman of the Appropriations Committee, I am so busy in the first quarter. I'm just that's my that's my job. I'm not going to leave my job and go make fundraising calls all day. Now, my opponent, obviously, he's been on leave for he's got leave for a year and a half from the university, which is a public institution. So he's got nothing to do all day but make calls. So I would suspect that he would have a first better quarter than I would. But I'm not worried about that. Now, you had been very publicly critical of him getting that leave to begin with, or at least the length of the leave. What is your thoughts right now? You know, I've been pretty clear on this. The university has a policy on leave, particularly leave for running for public office. I don't believe that the university has ever complied with that policy. I still don't think they're complying with that policy. I think it's a really good example. We had a woman who teaches at the university that recently was going to run for the county commission and was told by the university, it was a story in the Columbia Tribune, she's told by the university, well, if you're going to run, you have to leave. You have to leave the university. And that really has always been the case. I can tell you at least three different candidates that's been the case. Mike's wife right. who almost ran for state Right, exactly. Uh, and there's a couple others I could tell you about. So, you know, I don't know why the university uh, picks and chooses when they want to enforce their rules. Uh, it's no different than their statement recently that they're actually going to enforce their rule now, which has been on the books a long time, against disruptive protests on campus. You know, I think sometimes the university treats its rules more as suggestions than actual rules. But, you know, they need to follow their rules, and that's been my position all along. But regardless, you know, there, there's nothing in the rules that allow for somebody to take a year and a half off uh, to do nothing but run for office. But, hey, if that's if that's how they want to uh, choose to run their rules, then that's what they're going to do. Uh, I'm not going to leave my job as a state senator just to go raise money in the first quarter. So what do you see as the biggest differences between you and Holly? We've talked about this before, but I'm curious now that you've been running for several months, there may be others that have emerged. Well, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I've been a lawyer in the state of Missouri for 20 years. I'm a former assistant attorney general, a former special assistant U.S. attorney. I've tried civil and criminal cases all over the state of Missouri. And, you know, running against a candidate who, as far as I can tell, has never tried a single case, not only in Missouri, but ever. And I think when you look particularly, and, and I think it's really interesting to look at the, at the campaign that Chris Coster ran, uh, both the last time against Ed Martin and then when he won in 2008. Um, against Gibbons. Against Mike Gibbons. And that was, you know, and, and I've known Chris since the days that we were both prosecutors back in the 90s. And when you're both Republicans. <laughs> well, one of us still is, and that's me. So, But, you know, the issue of if you're asking to be the top law enforcement officer of the state of Missouri, you better be able to say that you've tried some cases and put some dangerous criminals behind bars. Because if all you can say is, hey, I've been a college professor who's never tried a case, I think you need to look no further than what Chris Coster did to Ed Martin and, and Mike Gibbons of, hey, here's two guys that may be you know, good guys, whatever, but they've never done a single thing that actually translates into doing this job. And so I, I think that's the biggest distinction is, you know, I, I could walk into that office today and whether it's the civil aspect or the criminal aspect, there's not a job in that office that I have not done or that I couldn't go in and do from day one. And I don't think you can say that for about a college professor who's never been in a courtroom. Now, I, I understand the pol political optics of what you just said, and I'm not naive here, but from my understanding, the attorney general's office as the person who holds that office is, is very much managerial, like you manage the office and you occasionally get involved in, in, in trying cases personally, and I'm sure that you have an influence on how cases get tried. But if that's the main job, is it really that important whether you have this wealth of, of 
trial lawyer experience? And by trial lawyer, sure, I don't mean abso- that derisively. I mean sure, just literally. Absolutely. Well, think about this. Sure. Because there is no doubt a managerial aspect to that. Mm-hmm. But it is a very important state office with a $36 million annual budget and 440 employees, which mm-hmm. you are in charge of managing. And half of those 440 employees are lawyers that are out there every day in Missouri courtrooms litigating either civil or criminal cases. If you are the one who is ultimately responsible for their courtroom activity and the outcome of their cases, I would say it's pretty important that you've actually done that job and that you can help provide them in a direction with guidance of how those cases should go and how they should proceed in cases. And if you've never tried a case, I don't think you can do that. And what that means is you then have to hire somebody as your chief of staff or whatever who's actually going to tell you how to do that. I would rather be the direct elected official making those determinations than have to rely on somebody else's judgment to carry out that job. The reason I bring that up, and Joe, you may have to correct me on this because I actually don't know the answer to this question. When Jay Nixon became attorney general, I don't think he had extensive experience trying cases. Did and you Well, he, probably, he, he, he certainly no. had more courtroom experience than Josh Hawley, I can yeah. tell you that. And he also hired Don Downing, who was a very experienced lawyer to do that for him. But I think, you know, Jay himself tried cases too. I remember, for example, when I was in the criminal division, there was a death penalty case out of Jeff County, somebody who had killed a trooper. And Jay Nixon said, you know what, I'm going to try that one myself. And he did. Chris Coster makes it a point. uh, Every every year he does a couple of of capital cases, for example, or other murder cases. Those are the types of cases that I tried. And I think if you're somebody that's never even tried so much as a traffic ticket, you're simply not qualified to step in to that position. I think the other distinction, too, on that is having been a lawyer in Missouri for 20 years, being an assistant attorney general here, being a special assistant U.S. attorney here, it is different than being somebody who really had most of their legal career, which is minimal, was in Washington, D.C., and then you get 80 percent of your money from the East Coast from D.C. insiders. And that's the difference. I think the question is, are you a Missouri prosecutor who's going to carry out Missouri values? Are you somebody who really is a D.C. insider funded with D.C. money who's going to carry out the objectives of of Washington, D.C. insiders? That's the difference in this race. Now, do you expect that you'll be using some of these same arguments, assuming you get the nomination against um, whether it's Jake Zimmerman or Teresa Hensley, who are the two Democrats competing for this? I'm glad you asked that because the last time you were on the show, it was Scott Sifton and Jake Zimmerman. And you said you you criticized both of their lack of experience. But. If it's Teresa Hensley, for example, she was Cass County prosecutor for a number of years, and she's tried many big cases. Well, I don't know if Teresa has actually ever herself tried one of those cases, but she was certainly the elected prosecutor over the office. So that gives her more experience, for example, than than a law school professor who's never been in a Missouri courtroom. But aside from that, yeah, I, I think that 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 message of top law enforcement officer in the state of Missouri, which is the attorney general, has to have some experience that they can go out there and say, I can do this job because I've done it before and I know how to protect Missourians. I think Hensley probably has a better message there than than Jake does. Yes. Um, If Trump is the nominee, is that going to hurt your cause given how controversial he's been? You know, how that presidential race shakes down on on down ticket statewide races I have no idea. All I know is I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to keep swinging. I'm going to get my message out there. And, you know, there's some things in a campaign that you can control, and there's a whole lot of things that you can't. And so you just do your best, and you move forward, and you get your message out It's interesting you mention that because Obama, who almost won Missouri in 2008, did not really affect your personal race in 2008, but he probably did affect statewide down-ballot races. I would Imagine if he had done worse, Mike Gibbons may be the attorney general right now. Well, so. it depends on things. Because you look what happened with Romney. Romney carried the state by more than 10 points. That's true. And yet 
Claire McCaskill, her fight with Aiken kind of changed. So she, I, I, I would argue that she had the coattails, not That's Romney, true. for yeah. whatever reason. But, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I first got elected in 2008 in a 54% Democrat district in an overwhelmingly Democrat year when Barack Obama actually Correct. came to Columbia two weeks before the election. Yes, he did. Which one of the, was one of those things that was clearly outside my control but got, gave me some concern. Um, you know, that's just what happens. But it's interesting because on my reelect in 2012, Cooper County, which is a very Republican county, um, I think Mitt Romney got about 62 percent of yes, the vote in Cooper County. But I got, I think, 76, 78 percent of the vote in Cooper County. So you can see how there's some effect, but you, it's it's not always clear how that effect works. And a good example would be me getting much more of the Republican vote, for example, in Cooper County in 2012 than Mitt Romney did. By the way, how do you define Missouri values? Because you just mentioned them. I'm curious. Yeah, I, I think Missourians are very pragmatic, very practical, and very conservative. I think Missourians are compassionate, but they're not fools. I think people want to help other people, but they do not want to be taken advantage of. I think that's, you know, I think that's a Midwestern value in general, but I think it's very specific to Missouri. Which do you think are better, New York values or Missouri values or Maine values? I would say Missouri values. They're better than Maine values. I would say that I know Missouri values. I, I don't really know what Maine values or New, New York values are. I know what Missouri values are because those are the values that I share, having grown up here and being a sixth-generation Missourian. So I'm very comfortable with Missouri values, and I, I think they're wonderful. I, I think Maine values involves eating a lot of lobsters, but we'll have to leave it there. Yeah, if uh, Trump gets the nomination, I guess you'll learn a lot about what New York values are. Probably eating a lot of pizza. <laughs> um, thank you, as always, for, for joining us for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I'm pretty sure you can be followed at Kurt U. Schaefer. Is that correct? Yes. And follow him for his insights on New Wave music. We'll be back next week. <laughs> Until then, so long. Like my mother, she's never-